Today's guest is James Rosen, a great reporter who has a wonderful new book out on the late, great Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia. He's the chief White House correspondent for Newsmax. Welcome to The Voice of the Resistance with Doc Washburn. We're the show that pushes back against the Uniparty and the deep state, lets you into the news that traditional talk radio is all too often afraid to talk about. This is episode 358 of the all-new Doc Washburn Show for Thursday, March 9th, 2023. Just so you understand where I'm coming from, I was fired by one of the biggest radio companies in America, Cumulus Media, simply because I refused their vaccine mandate. More evidence comes out all the time. A lot of people are having serious negative reactions to the vaccines. Also, I will never call Joe Biden president because it's obvious to me the last U.S. presidential election was stolen. I will never pretend a man can become a woman, and I will never forget about the January 6th political prisoners most Republican politicians refuse to even mention. On August 8th, 2022, the day the Biden regime's secret police conducted an unprecedented and unconstitutional raid on the home of a former president of the United States is the day that shall live in infamy. So this is a really different kind of talk show. We're unmasked, uncensored, and unfiltered. If you like to support what we do, go to our website, docwashburn.com. Click on the button that says Become a Patron. We really appreciate our patrons. Also, please remember to subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss an episode. And make sure you check out our new conservative sports podcast, Red Pill Sports, with my friend Donnie Copeland, which drops Tuesday evenings at 11 p.m. Central. Okay, our guest today is James Rosen. He was a longtime reporter for Fox News. He's now the chief White House correspondent for Newsmax TV. He has had a long and storied career. Look, any reporter who's been spied on by the Obama Justice Department must have been doing something right, okay? His new book is entitled Scalia, Rise to Greatness, 1936 to 1986. It includes details from the four FBI background checks on Scalia. Chief Justice Rehnquist's shocking comments to Justice Scalia about going by legal reasoning versus going for results. The never-before-reported conversation revealing that Supreme Court was Scalia's goal from early on, the friendship and rivalry between Scalia and Robert Bork, who had been passed over for a Supreme Court nomination in favor of Scalia, seems from Scalia's brilliant and sometimes hilarious testimony before Congress, how the famous friendship between Justice Scalia and Ruth Bader Ginsburg was actually formed during their tenure on the D.C. Court of Appeals, where Ginsburg took an almost maternal interest in lightening Scalia's workload and engaging photographs from Scalia's pre-Supreme Court years. Now, James Rosen knew Justice Scalia, and he interviewed a lot of associates, including other Supreme Court justices, in the lead-up to this remarkable work. Let me tell you something. Beach weather is going to be here soon. This is a perfect book to take with you while you get a tan at the beach. Once you pick up Scalia, Rise to Greatness, you're going to have a hard time putting it down Brother James Rosen, thank you so much for coming on the Doc Washburn Show. Unfortunately, I've taken all your time with the introduction. I know you got to run. I'm sorry. How are you today? I'm blessed to be with you, Doc, and I hope I live up to that introduction. Well, we're, we're blessed to have you. Thank you very much. Okay, first thing I have to ask you, you spent five years researching this new book, Scalia, Rise to Greatness, about, about his pre-Supreme Court years what are some of the things you uncovered in your five years of research that really surprised you? Well, thanks again for having me, Doc. This book, Scalia, Rise to Greatness, tells the story of the first 50 years of Antonin Scalia's life in greater detail uh, and with appropriate perspective that has been lacking from previous biographies of the man. And uh, this book ends with Antonin Scalia taking his seat on the Supreme Court. It tells the story of how he got there. Um, and hopefully I'll be back with you in two and a half years to discuss the second and final volume of the biography, which will cover Justice Scalia's Supreme Court tenure. Yeah, I was hoping uh, there'd be a part two. That's fantastic. Go right ahead. So in terms of surprising revelations, the fact is uh, there were two previous biographies of Antonin Scalia, both of which were published during his lifetime, and uh, one of which he cooperated with uh, extensively, the other not at all. And both of which turned out essentially the same way, which is to say fairly hostile in their, openly hostile in their treatment of Justice Scalia's legacy, jurisprudence, his conduct. So this is the first biography of Antonin Scalia published since his death. It is the most comprehensive of two volumes. It makes use of a vast uh, array of uh, governmental documentary and personal sources that were either overlooked by or unavailable to 
uh, the previous biographers. Uh, and it is the first admiring biography of Antonin Scalia, and therefore the first accurate biography of Antonin Scalia. And in terms of some of those surprises and revelations and those documents that have never appeared elsewhere, uh, for example, everyone's familiar with the famous uh, friendship between Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Justice Scalia, uh, who served 23 terms on the court together as bitter uh, jurisprudential foes, in their opinions, and the best of friends, ringing in the new year every year with their spouses and so wow. forth. Wow, wow. Uh, and this, this book, uh, Scalia Rise to Greatness, just out this week, um, for the first time publishes Ruth Bader Ginsburg's papers, as well as those of Robert Bork and others, from the Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit, one rung below the Supreme Court, uh, often described as the second most powerful court in America, where uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg had two years of experience on Nino Scalia when he showed up as a judge on that appellate bench in 1982. She had been appointed by President Carter. And the handwritten notes and memos and letters and draft opinions and other kinds of correspondence that flew back and forth uh, between the chambers of Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Antonin Scalia, which have never been published before, capture their sparkling wit, uh, their love of intellectual combat. Uh, and in these memos and notes, you see Ruth Bader Ginsburg at first adopting almost a maternal instinct towards Scalia, uh, repeatedly expressing concern about the weight of his workload and so on. Uh, we see her alternately challenging, provoking, needling, um, flattering Scalia, uh, prodding him toward one uh, point or another about the law, the First Amendment, and other issues. And for his part, we see Scalia sometimes letting down his hair, apologizing for a late opinion, calling himself a sloth, and admitting error to Ruth Bader Ginsburg in, in writing and praising her works as well. So these, what I call the RBG Nino papers, which are just one example of the uh, wealth of new documents in this book, um, I think really capture uh, the 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 beginning and the blossoming of this celebrated friendship, and you can read it all in Scalia Rise to Greatness. Well, an RBG Nino Papers would probably be a, a great name for a rock band. Um, <laughs> now that 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 is fascinating. Now, a lot of people just want the Supreme Court to make rulings. Uh, that would have ramifications in the broader society that they would like. A lot of people, I don't care if they're conservative or liberal, somewhere in between, they really don't understand that the court is actually supposed to follow the Constitution. And let's face it, the, the Warren Court, you know, before Scalia's time, a lot of times didn't follow the Constitution. Sometimes, sometimes the court still doesn't follow the Constitution. What did Chief Justice Rehnquist say? about that that really shocked Antonin Scalia. This, again, is a story that's told for the first time in this new book, Scalia Rise to Greatness, uh, where uh, Justice Scalia confided late in his life on two occasions to a group of continuing legal education students that he taught law courses to in exotic locales when the Supreme Court was out of session uh, each summer. Um, uh, toward the end of his life, he... Uh, he disclosed that um, prior to his joining the Supreme Court, when Scalia was a judge on the Court of Appeals, he um, uh, was told by his poker buddy and friend of long standing, William Rehnquist, who by that point was Chief Justice of the United States. In effect, Nino Rehnquist is said to have told Scalia, You focus too much on the reasoning, just get to the right outcome in your rulings, in essence. And, of course, that was not the kind of justice that Antonin Scalia intended to be nor proved to be. For Scalia, the process was everything, and the outcome could just as well go against Scalia's policy preferences as for it. Uh, and good examples of that would be the fact that Scalia was personally conservative and a, a law enforcement uh, supporter, uh, a champion of law and order. But he ruled repeatedly uh, for example, in, on, in behalf of, uh, as a Supreme Court justice, in behalf of criminal defendants, some of whom were accused of uh, sexual crimes, uh, because uh, either he found the Fourth Amendment uh, to prohibit the kinds of searches and seizures that the police uh, had tried in various cases, or because uh, certain uh, criminals were, uh, uh, in their trials, uh, subjected to a situation in which uh, a screen, a non-see-through screen, would be placed between them and their accuser. And, and under the Sixth Amendment, Scalia would strike that down, saying there is such a, the, the literal meaning of the words, Sixth Amendment right to confront your accuser means confront. 
not uh, not allow a tape recording to be played necessarily in, in court as, a, as sufficient for that purpose or to allow a screen to be placed between the person testifying and the and the accused. So uh, these were these were outcomes of, of, of decisions that Scalia himself didn't personally approve of politically, but it showed the honesty and the integrity at the heart of his enterprise and the entire revolution that he effectuated as a member of the federal bench where uh, he oriented everyone on the force of his personality and the strength of his dissents, the liveliness of his wit and character, uh, to start looking uh, at the original meaning of the Constitution and the original meaning of statutes, rather than seeing the, the Constitution as a living, uh, expanding organism that should uh, be whose meaning should be expanded uh, just because uh, there's new phenomena that the Founding Fathers couldn't have envisioned, such as nuclear weapons or the Internet. Scalia believed it was wrong to graft our latter-day meanings and sensibilities onto existing legal texts like the Constitution and every law passed since then. Uh, if you wanted to accommodate for new phenomena, the people should elect representatives who will pass laws that will do that. Um, and Scalia saw this, as you, as you point out, Doc, that, that as a kind of usurpation of power by what he called an imperial judiciary. And after, by the time Scalia died, no less a figure then Supreme Court Justice Elena Kagan, an appointee of Barack Obama, had pronounced that, in effect, as a result of Scalia's revolution uh, in orienting how judges and lawyers think about these things, quote, we are all originalists now. Wow. Kagan said this. Oh, my goodness. Yes. So I wanted to ask you, um, a lot of us were thrilled that the Supreme Court overturned uh, Roe v. Wade but Scalia early on, I think it was Planned Parenthood versus Casey, uh, but early on, many years ago, was saying, look, we could use this case to overturn Roe, not because of the outcome that he wanted, but because, as the justices admitted uh, recently, uh, that Roe v. Wade was such a horribly um, done uh, decision, and it could not stand uh, you know, constitutional scrutiny. Uh, do you think Scalia's legacy uh, kind of loomed over uh, the recent decision that that did overturn Roe? Indisputably, and, and, and uh, we can say that simply because Scalia's legacy still hangs over the Supreme Court and the law and American society uh, across a broad range of subject matters, of which abortion is one, yeah. uh, one important one. Um, but in Scalia Rise to Greatness, this new book out this week, uh, our readers will uh, watch as uh, Professor Scalia of the University of Chicago Law School participating in a televised debate for the American Enterprise Institute uh, in 1978 makes his first public comments on abortion as a subject. Uh, and of course, you referenced his jurisprudence on the Supreme Court in Planned Parenthood v. Casey and there's also the, the Webster case as well, uh, where he uh, invade against uh, the, the constitutional uh, reasoning in Roe and called for a flat overturn of it. Um, I'm often asked uh, what I think Scalia would have made of the Dobbs decision that ultimately did overturn Roe, issued last June, some six years after Justice Scalia's passing. And precisely because, as we've explained, Doc, um, it was Scalia's revolution to uh, insist that we abide by the original meaning of a given text or body of work rather than graft our latter-day sensibilities onto it. Uh, you'll have to forgive me for being leery of attributing to Antonin Scalia uh, any particular view of a particular decision or set of personalities or events that post-date him. Right, right, right. And, and uh, forgive me, I, I got Planned Parenthood versus Casey confused with Webster versus Re Reproductive Health Services. I think the Webster one was where he was, he, a few years earlier, was the one where he was saying, look, we could overturn um, Roe with this. Um, on, on an unrelated note, a lot of us had no idea, and, and I had no idea until I opened your book, that Antonin Scalia had been actually nominated for a legal post by President Nixon before the president resigned from office due to Watergate. What was that post, and how did Scalia navigate through the difficult Watergate period? So, uh, great questions, Doc. The, uh, the book, Scalia Rise to Greatness, uh, traces Scalia's entire career in academia and government 
Um, uh, and also, I have to say, in greater depth than any previous book, his Catholic upbringing yeah. and, and wellsprings of his deep and devout faith. Uh, but uh, periods of his career that had previously received very cursory attention from previous biographers are explored in much greater documentary detail in this book, yeah. Scalia Rise to Greatness. Now, Scalia served in the Nixon administration from 1970 to 1972 as general counsel when he was 35 years old to a newly created agency created by the Nixon administration called the White House Office of Telecommunications Policy. Uh, there was a, a need understood by the man who headed the uh, agency, Tom Whitehead, an honest-to-God visionary and genius with several advanced degrees who hired Scalia for his first job in government in 1970. It was Whitehead and Scalia's belief that uh, the sprawling bureaucracy relating to telecommunications which was located across several agencies, et cetera, needed to be consolidated with the growing influence of telecommunications under White House administrative control. And to the, uh, to the business of the launching of domestic space satellites for telecom purposes, Whitehead and Scalia, and, and this plays out, I have all the documents from Scalia's time at this agency. They've never been published anywhere else. They show Scalia uh, and Whitehead trying to apply free market principles so that any qualified firm could launch domestic space satellites. And that's what happened. And Scalia, in his personal writings at this time, predicts the Internet, predicts the types of remote user terminals at which people would do their banking and watch television and so on. And in his writings, also previously unpublished until now, you see Scalia predicting the privacy concerns that would attend the rise of this new technology. The terms escaping that, that, that Scalia and his, his colleagues at, at this White House Office of Telecommunications Policy in the early 70s were using wouldn't escape the lips of most ordinary Americans for for 25 years. Uh, terms like shared computer system and networks, and we see Scalia presiding over the achievement where two distinct Pentagon communication systems were finally made interoperable with each other. Um, that's one job he had in the Nixon administration. Toward the end of that administration, in the summer of 1974, uh, President Nixon nominates Scalia to be attorney, assistant attorney general for the Office of Legal Counsel at the Department of Justice. It's a very sensitive post. It's, it's described as the president's lawyer's lawyer. A person's job at AAG for the Office of Legal Counsel is supposed to provide written legal opinions that pronounce on the lawfulness or unlawfulness of what an administration wants to do, any kind of policy or legislation or what have you. Uh, and Nixon resigned before the Senate could take up Scalia's nomination. Uh, and then the country had its first man elect who, uh, serving as president who had never been elected president or vice president in Gerald Ford. Uh, so ultimately, Scalia was confirmed by the Senate for the positions. Ford had to kind of renominate him. And in later years, Justice Scalia liked to boast that his commission, the, the papers officially commissioning him with federal office when he took that job in August 1974, um, were something of a collector's item in his view because uh, the, the language of his official federal commission was rewritten specifically for him to take account of the unusual circumstance in which he was appointed but not nominated by the same president. That's just amazing that he could foresee the Internet coming a couple of decades later. This guy was a genius. We're speaking with James Rosen, chief White House correspondent, correspondent, pardon me, uh, with Newsmax. Now, on, on a lighter note, this this larger-than-life figure, figure, Justice Antonin Scalia, uh, you actually rode in a car with him at the wheel one time. What? Uh, how fun was that? What was that like? <laughs> well, I was privileged to know Justice Scalia a little bit. Um, first, One of the first things I did when I arrived in Washington as a new Washington correspondent in 1999 when I was 30 was uh, to write to Justice Scalia seeking an interview. This commenced between us a rather amusing and unusual correspondence that spanned about two years' time, uh, and which I'll be excerpting from in Volume 2, uh, and also led to a pair of lunches between us, one-on-one, -on -one, at his favorite place, which was a now-long-gone, um, fairly modest Italian restaurant called the A.V. Ristorante Italiano on New York Avenue in, in Washington, D.C. And we drank wine together, and he made me eat off of his plate. <laughs> Said Mr. Justice, I couldn't. He's like, come on, come on, come on. So now I'm shoveling vegetables off of Justice Scalia's plate. Good uh, grief. And he drove me back to my office on both occasions. Uh, and I was later able to confirm with classmates who'd known him in the 1950s, Supreme Court clerks for him in the 21st century, that all of them found the experience of being his passenger, as I did, a bit unnerving. <laughs> um, did he like to take corners kind of quickly? I mean, what the. <laughs> get, what tell the tell us more. 
I'm going to re- res- I'm going to uh, reserve this for volume two. Okay. I have to entice our listeners to purchase that volume in 2025 somehow. But I, I promise to uh, to include that observation. <laughs> no, that's that's fantastic. Our interview with Newsmax Chief White House Correspondent James Rosen continues in just a moment. You know, I, I got to tell you something. If you've tried to buy a car recently, you realize you may have a hard time finding what you're looking for. People I know have actually bought vehicles from hundreds of miles away from where they live. That's where Red River Auto comes in. Red River Auto is a big old car car dealership in the middle of the USA that believes in freedom. That includes your freedom to buy a car, truck, van, or SUV the way you want to. You can buy online, and they'll drive it to you no matter where you are. Red River Auto wants to make sure your car buying experience is as easy and transparent as possible. Red River Auto Group has perfected the online buying process. Just go to redriverauto.com and pick from hundreds of new and used vehicles. You can purchase your vehicle online. If you have any questions, one of Red River's trained experts will help you through the whole process. Red River Auto makes car buying online easy. Your whole car buying process is completely transparent. If you want to buy a car, truck, van, or SUV, Order online from the nationwide car dealer that believes in freedom, the dealer that will deliver your vehicle to your front door no matter where you live in the continental USA. RedRiverAuto.com. You'll be glad you did. Now, I want to tell you about the best-kept secret in American healthcare. Are you having problems with sinuses and allergies? Are you experiencing dizziness, vertigo, problems with your blood sugar? fibromyalgia, eczema, psoriasis, migraines. The Arkansas Cervical Center might be able to help you, even if you don't live in Arkansas. Let me tell you how. Your skull weighs anywhere from 8 to 15 pounds. It rests on the top bone of your spinal column, the atlas, or C1, which only weighs 2 ounces. So it's really easy for your atlas to get out of alignment. If it does, your whole spinal column can get kinked up like a chain. When that happens, your central nervous system isn't able to communicate with the rest of your body as it's designed to do. I had severe hay fever for five or six weeks every spring all my life. When I got my atlas adjusted, the hay fever went away, and it's never come back. Hey, my migraines went away too, and they're gone for good. Again, if you're suffering from sinus conditions, allergies, vertigo, fibromyalgia, eczema, psoriasis, migraines, do yourself a favor. Call my friends at the Arkansas Cervical Center, 501-279-2009, for a free consultation. They've helped me. They've helped my wife. They've helped so many people we know. Please call them to see if they can help you. That number, again, for your free consultation is 501-279-2009. If you're outside central Arkansas, just go to their website, TurnMyPowerOn.com. Click on the tab that says Find a Doctor Near You. And I sure hope that you can. As you probably heard by now, our friend Mike Lindell has a passion to help everybody get the best sleep of your life. He's done it again. Introducing MyPillow 2.0, which has a brand new temperature regulating technology that keeps you comfortable throughout the night. MyPillow 2.0's new fabric dissipates heat and humidity to create a cooling sensation to maintain a cooler surface temperature. This new fabric technology helps regulate your body temperature throughout the night by creating a lower surface temperature for a more restful night's sleep. You know, your core body temperature plays a big role in how well you sleep. MyPillow 2.0 was developed to provide a cool surface. It's engineered for comfort. MyPillow 2.0 is available in four loft levels. It's machine washable and dryable. There's a 10-year warranty, 60-day money-back guarantee, and there's a special introductory offer for my listeners. When you buy your new MyPillow 2.0, you get a second one free just by using promo code DWS. Now, Mike also created the best bed sheets ever. They look and feel great, which means an even better night's sleep for me, which is crucial for my busy schedule. My wife and I just love sleeping on our Giza Dreams sheets. 
Now, Mike is offering the best deal on his Giza Dreams sheets. You get a set of them for as low as twenty nine ninety eight. The first night you sleep on these sheets, you'll never want to sleep on anything else. Mike's making a special offer for my listeners. Get a set of Giza sheets for as low as twenty nine ninety eight just by using promo code DWS. Right now, I'm wearing my new My Slippers moccasins. I had no idea slippers could feel this good. Right now, save up to $90 on my slippers, slip-ons, and moccasins, marked down to just $49.98, all by using promo code DWS. Now, remember, that promo code does not stand for washed-up Democrat politician Debbie Wasserman Schultz. No, no, no. DWS stands for Doc Washburn Show, MyPillow.com and MyStore.com, where Mike sells all kinds of stuff. Quantities extremely limited at these amazing prices, so please order now. Just use promo code DWS. Now, back to our interview with Newsmax Chief White House Correspondent James Rosen on his new book, Scalia, Rise to Greatness. So, going back to what you said about Justice Kagan, we're all originalists now. Um, don't you wish that uh, that Sotomayor and, and, and Kagan and, and especially Kagan uh, Katanji Jackson really were originalists. I mean, it's one thing to say it. It's one thing to give a, a tribute to this great man, this towering uh, legal figure, Antonin Scalia, but it's another thing to actually follow through. Well, it was pointed out by Justice Scalia's detractors in his lifetime, and, and then again after his passing, that he never succeeded in persuading um, a majority of his uh, colleagues on the court, including the Republican appointees, uh, to adopt a, a kind of originalist methodology, such as Scalia prescribed. Um, prescribed. Um, uh, Justice Thomas, of course, um, is certainly uh, is an originalist, and, and to many eyes, perhaps uh, more of a consistent originalist uh, than Scalia, who at one point uh, never stopped hearing about this from his conservative friends, uh, described himself as a faint-hearted originalist because uh, he couldn't really go along with a notching of the ear or uh, other kind of uh, punishments that would have been acceptable in the framers' time but would be considered cruel and unusual under the Eighth Amendment. Uh, and for that reason, he, he supposed that he was a, a faint-hearted originalist. But the fact is that uh, while Scalia was predicted when he joined the Supreme Court in 1986 to prove to be somebody who would uh, forge a lot of five to four uh, coalitions across ideological lines because he was so charming and beloved by the Democrats, uh, the Democratic appointed uh, judges on the lower court, the Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit. Uh, in, in, his detractors pointed out that he uh, never really uh, proved that persuasive uh, or, or, or such an effective consensus or majority builder and preferred to write in dissent, often in stinging terms. Uh, but Scalia's eye always was on the long game in this respect, which was to say that uh, he understood that even with a well-crafted dissent that would be appealing to lay readers as well as lawyers, uh, that could be readily understood and which was lively with its wit and its treatment of the law, that he could influence uh, generations of law students to come uh, because his dissent so lively would be published in, uh, in the case books used by law school professors, and they were. And again, um, to the Justice Kagan's point that we are all originalists now, what does this mean? It means that when lawyers argue before the Supreme Court, they're not talking about the legislative history that preceded the passage of a law. They're talking about the text of the law and its original meaning, uh, just as Scalia insisted that they should. And they're not uh, caught uh, too often anymore. Uh, it's suggesting that the Constitution is a living, breathing organ, uh, organ or document that should be expanded in its meaning as circumstances require due to modern uh, innovations or developments. Uh, the book is Scalia Rise to Greatness, 1936-1986. James Rosen, Chief White House Correspondent for Newsmax, is, is our guest today. Uh, it's an amazing book. because It, it was written by uh, about an amazing man. Justice Scalia, back in 05, you got this quote at the start of your uh, um, chapter, particularly dangerous. He says, the main business of the lawyer is to take the imagination, the mystery, the romance, the ambiguity out of everything that he touches. It is not for nothing that the expression is sober as a judge rather than exciting as a judge or inspiring 
as a judge. <laughs> is, is he kind of in the, in the minority report there sometimes when, when you look at uh, the, the Supreme Court justices? Uh, so he was often in the minority and, in fact, often in solo dissent. Um, and one of the greatest examples, what, what many consider to be Justice Scalia's finest opinion from the 1988 term was called Morrison v. Olson, where his uh, usual biological ally, if you will, Chief Justice Rehnquist, wrote the majority opinion for a court that was divided eight to one, with Justice Scalia providing the only dissent. Uh, Morrison v. Olson was, uh, with respect to the uh, establishment of the independent counsel, uh, the kinds of special prosecutors that we saw proliferate after the post-Watergate period. And Olson, of course, was Ted Olson, who would serve as Solicitor General of the United States, uh, but who was um, a a renowned Republican attorney, still with us, of course, and who um, uh, had challenged one of these independent counsel uh, who were investigating him at the time, uh, which produced no charges. But um, in any case, Scalia wrote that the independent counsel law was completely a violation of the separation of powers and unconstitutional because the idea that somebody in the Justice Department cannot adequately investigate somebody in the executive branch, whether it's the president or anyone on down or the solicitor general or anybody, um, and therefore needs to appoint a special counsel who uh, exists outside the normal architecture of the Department of Justice. Uh, Scalia, in his opinion, in Morrison v. Olson, considered his masterpiece, uh, likened that to uh, the creation of a junior varsity Congress. Uh, because we might decide that Congress isn't legislating effectively enough at some point. Wow. And in this book, Scalia, Rise to Greatness, one of the previously unpublished documents is from the mid-1970s, when Scalia worked in the uh, Ford administration, and where he, um, uh, where he um, was f- uh, very focused on the fact that there was a Watergate special prosecutor, and, uh, and wrote that... Um, as far as he understood, being the assistant attorney general for the Department of Justice uh, in the Office of Legal Counsel, the, the special prosecutors in Watergate weren't clearing their, uh, their court filings and their various interpretations of the law that they were putting before judges in the Watergate trials. Uh, they weren't clearing those in advance with the Department of Justice, that it was existing almost entirely separately of the kinds of policy decisions that Department of Justice was making on a daily basis. And so this uh, early memo from the 70s uh, captures for the first time and you see it in this book, Scalia Rise to Greatness, uh, Scalia's antipathy towards special counsel on constitutional grounds, and it long predates Morrison v. Olson. Yeah, I mean, you wonder, you, you got a really different court now because at that point, the majority was Rehnquist, Brennan, White, Marshall, Blackman, Stevens, O'Connor. You got really different kinds of people on the on the court now. You, you would hope that if if this case would come up now, more people would join Scalia because you, you look at the um, at the ramifications of this eight to one ruling, um, you know, holding up the, the the special counsel, the independent counsel, and, and and you wind up with Mueller who hamstrings a duly elected president of the United States for for almost two years uh, because the court got it wrong on that one, and the fact that Scalia well, could see. Historical um, parallel to worth mentioning yeah. uh, from Scalia's own time, uh, which is uh, the uh, the large number of Democrats who were suddenly big fans of Antonin Scalia's jurisprudence and particularly his dissent in Morrison v. Olson when a special counsel was investigating President Clinton uh, first for Whitewater and then the Lewinsky saga and so on. Oh yeah! Uh, suddenly, a lot of Democrats saw the wisdom of Scalia's separation of powers approach. Now, look, I'm getting sick and tired of this, and I'm only going to say this once. And I want y'all to listen, listen good. I did not smoke cigars with it. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry. That's a very good impersonation. I don't know who that was. Now, look, I'm feeling my own pain right now, you know. I mean, can I see the definition of the word, please? Am I turning around around here somewhere? Bruce Lindsay, David Kendall, or somebody? Sorry, sorry. Well, <laughs> by, by way of doing my own Bill Clinton impersonation, um, I can tell you that on the on voting day, election day, two thousand, I was stationed uh, uh, in the gymnasium uh, in Chappaqua, New York, where the Clintons were going to go and vote in the election in which Mrs. Clinton was running for senator. Yeah, uh, for, of New York, and where she won. And so we showed up very early in the morning, and the Clintons arrived, and they stood in this gymnasium with other voters uh, behind some sort of velvet stanchions, uh, 
and the press was kept at a distance, and there was all this mad fluttering of, of camera shutters and so forth. And Mrs. Clinton went in first and pulled the, the booth uh, curtains behind her as she voted. And President Clinton, former president, well, I guess he was still president at that point, yeah. was, uh, was, had his arm around uh, his young daughter, Chelsea, and they were just patiently waiting to vote, and there was this awkward silence. So I yelled out, have you made up your mind yet, Mr. President? <laughs> and uh, and he, he sort of looked around as if to say, who said that? And he said to me, you can't put me down as undecided. And everyone laughed. And they voted, and we all scrambled for our cars to go back to Manhattan. And uh, on the way to Manhattan, uh, we listened to news radio, and we heard when a reporter asked President Clinton if he had made up his mind yet, you can't put me down, it's undecided. And I thought, all right, I did my job that day. <laughs> that is fantastic. That I, I love that anecdote. So I, we, we before we run out of time here, I would be remiss in my duty if I didn't bring up uh, Robert Bork and how the Democrats and the U.S. Senate were just horrible to this guy, and they got his scalp. And I'm I'm sure in in the book Scalia Rise to Greatness, you're going to talk about how they tried to get Scalia's scalp too, right? So this book again, Scalia Rise to Greatness, takes us through the moment when. Uh, Antonin Scalia is sworn in as a member, as a justice on the Supreme Court. Yeah. So the infamous hearings uh, for uh, Robert Bork to be to follow him to the Supreme Court, and which ended in uh, Judge Bork's uh, rejection by the Senate, so famous for its partisanship and bitterness, um, that will not occur in our chronology until Volume Two. But this book, Scalia: Rise to Greatness, in addition to tracing the friendship of uh, Nino Scalia and Ruth Bader Ginsburg also traces the friendship of Bob Bork and Nino Scalia. And it was a deep one, but uh, cracks eventually formed in it, focused on an important issue of the law, particularly First Amendment uh, protections. And ultimately, the sort of friendly rivalry between them was settled with cruel finality. Uh, and But we see the moment when this news comes to Robert Bork, and this, I think, is one of the most, probably the most sensitive portrait of Robert Bork yet in print, the most to treat him, the one that treats him most accurately as a, as a genial and, and brilliant individual uh, who uh, lost out uh, in that first round of nominations to Antonin Scalia. And many people have theorized that perhaps had the order been reversed, they both would have gone on the Supreme Court. Uh, we'll never know. Uh, but it was a it was a very um, affectionate friendship, and I think I've rendered it in this book. Scalia rise to greatness in real human terms. I'm sorry, you're you're, you're right. When 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 Bork was torpedoed, then Anthony Kennedy uh, got that position, and that was that was after Scalia was was already in the court. Uh, absolutely, I I get confused easily. So what? This is why we write it down. Yes. <laughs> No, that that is that is a a, a great point. Um, so Justice Scalia was one of the country's most prominent Roman Catholics. Uh, how did his faith contribute to his rise? Well, it was foundational. Um, Scalia was the son of an Italian immigrant who spoke no English when he arrived in America in 1920, and who made himself into a renowned professor of Romance languages. Uh, and uh, Scalia's mother was herself the child of Italian immigrants, and she became an elementary school teacher. And they were all devout Catholics. Uh, Scalia's birth was uh, kind of a miracle unto itself because amongst his parents and their siblings, you're looking at nine families that could have produced children, but the only one that did and the only child produced was Scalia's parents uh, who gave birth to Antonin Scalia in 1936. So his onlyness uh, affected his personality uh, and... Uh, and perhaps contributed to his willingness uh, to be the one in eight-to-one dissent on the Supreme Court many years later. Uh, but his immersion in the Catholic faith as a very devout Catholic, and uh, his father's uh, penchant for literalness in translation of foreign texts, and his mother's work as a schoolteacher, all imbued young Antonin Scalia with a profound reverence for text, and the belief that text should not uh, change over time. Uh, and uh, Father Paul Scalia, uh, Justice Scalia's son, um, who is uh, a vicar of clergy in the Archdiocese of uh, Arlington, Virginia, uh, and who was interviewed for this project, stated in uh, the memorial services for his father that Christ is the same today as he was yesterday and will be tomorrow, in essence, 
And so the immutability of certain foundational texts, both in and out of the church, I think played uh, an extraordinary role in Scalia's career. And we have to note as well that he was valedictorian at two Jesuit institutions in his educational life. One was his high school, which was a rare hybrid of a Jesuit institution with a military academy called Xavier High School, from which he graduated valedictorian in 1953. And then Georgetown University, another Jesuit institution where, again, Scalia graduated valedictorian in 1957. He then goes on to Harvard Law School, top five in his class. But the rigor of the Jesuits in particular, um, uh, I think, account for the rigor we see in Scalia's writing and in his logic. Um, and uh, we tell the story in Scalia Rise to Greatness of how he and his fellow students um, at Xavier would uh, be terrorized by uh, a Jesuit priest uh, who would make them conjugate Latin verbs within 60 seconds' time under the threat of a ticking stopwatch. Oh, my. Yeah, I, I think I'd have a tough time with that. Now, I realize that the interaction of Justice Scalia and other Supreme Court justices, we're going to have to wait for uh, for part two, um, Scalia Right to Greatness being uh, part one, the, the, the new book that just came out a couple of days ago. Uh, but do you, do you th- you know, it, to whet the appetite for for our listeners for two and a half years from now, do you think one of the things that uh, Justice Thomas and Justice Scalia had uh, in in common, um, not uh, obviously their backgrounds, because Justice Thomas came up from from grinding poverty, but the fact that they were both Roman Catholics, um, I think that is a part of their of their relationship for sure, and I think that. Um for Justice Thomas, who was interviewed for this project, uh, but who doesn't appear until Volume 2, yeah. um, I think he regarded Scalia as uh, someone who was an early friend to him on the court when he first joined, and under such, uh, again, uh, partisan and bitter circumstances. Uh, and um, I think it was an insult that both men felt profoundly that it was commonly suggested at the time and in subsequent years that somehow Scalia was uh, kind of a Svengali or mentor to Justice Thomas, who followed Scalia blindly. Um, they both found that deeply offensive. And if anything, there's plenty of evidence that uh, Justice Thomas from time to time swayed Scalia uh, to Justice Thomas's own point of view on given cases. Uh, but theirs was a deep, deep friendship. Uh, one amusing story among many that will appear in Volume 2, by way of wetting the aforementioned appetite, um, is that um, Scalia, of course, was an avid hunter. And he would always try to get Justice Thomas to join him on hunting trips. And Generally, Justice Thomas demurred. And finally, Justice Scalia said to him, look, I'm from Queens, okay, and I like to go hunting, and you're from rural Georgia, and you don't like to go hunting? And as Justice Thomas told me, his response to Justice Scalia was, Nino, where I come from, nothing good happens in the woods. <laughs> oh, man. Pinpoint, Georgia. Uh, Justice Thomas in, in the Savannah area. That, that, that is a funny one. Uh, James Rosen, I don't know where the time goes, but we appreciate so much you being on the program with us today. The new book, and you can't put it down. You need to get a copy of it. Scalia, Rise to Greatness, 1936 to 1986, his first 50 years. James Rosen, of course, Chief White House Correspondent for Newsmax. It has been a delight to speak with you today about your new book, Scalia Rise to Greatness, and uh, we appreciate you so much. And as we say here in the South, y'all come see us. (laughs) I will, and Doc, you're kind to give me so much time. Thank you. All right, God bless you. Have a great day, sir. Thank you so much. Wow. Coming up, my thoughts on the interview you just heard and where the court stands today as the Doc Washburn Show continues. I don't know if you heard, but AT&T recently lost a lot of money on Wall Street. After their satellite outfit, DirecTV, decided to delete Newsmax? If you want to drop AT&T or any of the big liberal cell phone carriers, I have the perfect solution for you. Patriot Mobile is America's only Christian conservative wireless carrier. Now more than ever, it's important to band together and support companies that share our conservative values. Patriot Mobile donates a portion of every dollar earned to organizations that fight for causes you care about. Patriot Mobile has exceptional nationwide coverage and uses the same towers the main carriers use, and they have a coverage guarantee. You're covered. 
Patriot Mobile has plans to fit any budget along with great discounts for our veteran and first responder heroes, as well as multi-line users. I know I'm saving a lot of money with Patriot Mobile. When you switch to Patriot Mobile, you're shifting your support from the leftist progressive agendas of Big Mobile to the Christian conservative causes of Patriot Mobile. When you become a Patriot Mobile member, your dollars are helping to fund our God-given right to freedom. A portion of every dollar they earn is given back to the causes that support organizations that fight for First Amendment religious freedom, freedom of speech, Second Amendment right to bear arms, sanctity of life, and the needs of our veterans and first responders. Switching is easy. Just go to PatriotMobile.com or call their U.S.-based customer service team at 972-PATRIOT. Make sure you use promo code DOC, that's D-O-C, for free activation. Now, the great Ronald Reagan once said, Inflation is as violent as a mugger, as frightening as an armed robber, and as deadly as a hitman. Have you thought about the benefits of investing in precious metals? Here are five profound benefits. Number one, investing in precious metals is a hedge against inflation. Number two, it's a great way to diversify your portfolio. Number three, asset liquidity. Number four, precious metals tend to be a store of value. That means precious metals are an asset, commodity, or currency that maintain their value without depreciating over the long haul. And last but not least, number five, Precious metals can be a hedge against geopolitical uncertainty and the struggling U.S. dollar. So we're honored to join forces with Beverly Hills Precious Metals and its owner, Andrew Sorcini. Andrew has been involved in gold and silver for over 40 years. He and his team at Beverly Hills Precious Metals know the gold and silver business inside and out. After many years in the markets and collecting precious metals privately, Andrew opened Beverly Hills Precious Metals in 2010 to bring precious metals to the homes of everyday American citizens. Now, we found out about Andrew Sorcini and Beverly Hills Precious Metals from our buddy, General Michael Flynn, and we're glad we did. By the way, ask about the new General Mike Flynn silver coin from Beverly Hills Precious Metals. Andrew is a frequent guest on conservative podcasts. Beverly Hills Precious Metals is our gold buyer of choice. To learn more about Andrew and his team, Go to bh-pm.com. The BH stands for Beverly Hills. The PM stands for Precious Metals. bh-pm.com. Let them know Doc Washburn sent you. Hey, look, if you can't remember the website, just Google Beverly Hills Precious Metals. The first thing that comes up, no matter what search engine you use, is their website. We're honored to be able to tell you about Beverly Hills Precious Metals in an effort to help you in your attempts to protect your family's finances, wealth, and investments. bh-pm.com or just Google Beverly Hills Precious Metals and tell them Doc Washburn sent you. Now, I've been talking for quite a while now about how the world's going crazy with supply chain issues, record-setting inflation, and sky-high gas prices, and woke corporations that stand against everything we believe in. We all know how the big box stores were allowed to stay open all during the pandemic while so many little guys, small business owners, regular people were forced to close. The wealthiest people on earth became better off while mom and pop businesses suffered. The question is, what are we willing to do about it? Well, for that matter, what can we do about it? How can our voices be heard. We can make a difference by voting with our dollars. Why continue shopping at big box stores if you can get the items you need from a family-owned company? Now, finally, we can shop Factory Direct at a family-owned, made-in-America manufacturer. Switch to America.com is helping Americans walk away from the big box conglomerates. That's why Switch to America was created, with regular folks like you and me in mind. One of the best ways to get around this crazy inflation is to shop with family-owned companies that put their customers first rather than shareholders and corporate executives. A lot of Patriot influencers have come on board. I'm inviting you to join with fellow Patriots to cut off the cash flow of the big, woke corporations that are trying to destroy our country. We are done with the woke 
globalist operation against humanity. Each of us can take market share away from these businesses that have enjoyed unfair advantages. We can choose to help each other by shopping family-owned, made in America. The website? SwitchToAmerica.com. Join with over 2 million monthly shoppers that have already made the switch. Let's start voting with our dollars to make sure our purchases are supporting companies that promote freedom. Now, an even more exciting addition is fresh American-raised beef. Raised in the mountains of Montana near Yellowstone, this beef is known as never ever. Never has the animal ever been exposed to antibiotics, hormones, or vaccines. This prime or high-choice beef is shipped directly to your door. Pricing and availability is exclusive only to our members and isn't shipped anywhere else in the world. SwitchToAmerica.com is dedicated to offering family-owned alternatives for items we buy on a regular basis. Just go to SwitchToAmerica.com. When it asks how you heard about us, click on my name, Doc Washburn, plug in your info, and I'll have one of my guys contact you. SwitchToAmerica.com. That interview really was a delight. That was a joy. That went by so quickly. Scalia was a towering intellect, but as Brother Rosen alluded to there at the end of the interview, so is Justice Thomas, who we still have with us. Did Scalia and Thomas usually agree? Yeah. But were there cases every once in a blue moon in which they disagreed? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, it's possible. It's possible. But they both were originalists. They both refused to see the Constitution as a living, breathing uh, document. And uh, we have been much uh, the, the better for it. You know, you wish that the justices that uh, were appointed by Trump, who again knocked it out of the park on the Dobbs decision overturning Roe, you wish that they were more like Scalia, that they were more like Thomas. Because unfortunately, just like our current Chief Justice, it seems that they look for opportunities. They look for opportunities to get results that they want. They're not always originalists. They're not always looking at the, uh, the intent of the founders. And we are the poor for that. Would that they were all more like um, Thomas, Scalia, and, and for that matter, Alito. I'll, I'll give an example. Yeah, I'll give you an example. Late in 2020, after the election, Texas, the state of Texas, was suing some of the swing states, saying, look, uh, you have disenfranchised our voters by the, the things you have allowed to happen, the unconstitutional things you have allowed to happen in your states, which led to the election being stolen. Now, the U.S. Constitution says if a state sues one or more other states, this lawsuit is going to be heard right off the bat in the U.S. Supreme Court. It doesn't have to go through the lower federal courts, okay? This lawsuit shall be heard in the U.S. Supreme Court. But U.S. Supreme Court said 7 to 2, oh, we're not going to hear it. But the Constitution says, yeah, we don't care. We're not going to hear it. Who are the two dissenters? Clarence Thomas and Samuel Alito. So this is why a lot of conservatives, a lot of pro-life people, seeing the Dobbs case working its way through the federal courts to finally get to the Supreme Court, didn't hold out much hope that the Supreme Court was going to overturn Roe v. Wade because they had been disappointed so many times by Gorsuch, 
by Kavanaugh, by Amy Coney Barrett. And they just felt like those three had fallen under the sway of John Roberts, and we just kind of got to go along to get along and try in a misguided attempt to protect uh, the image that people had of the U.S. Supreme Court, uh, not, not rile the liberals up too much, right? So I remember telling people I was running for political office in the state of Arkansas in the spring of 2022, and I remember telling people, look, I'm just as disappointed with Gorsuch and Kavanaugh and Amy Coney Barrett as you are. However, I would not be surprised if they overturned Roe v. Wade. And people would always say, Doc, come on, man. Come on. Who are we talking about here? What's their track record here since they got on the court? Come on, man. That, that's not going to happen. And I say, well, now, wait, 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 wait. Let me tell you why. Because in the confirmation proceedings for Gorsuch, for Kavanaugh, for Amy Coney Barrett, in those times when Trump was trying to get them confirmed, uh, there was great concern from liberal legal experts that each one of them, if a case should come to the court, would vote to overrule Roe based on things they had publicly said about Roe, either in minority opinions, you know, dissents on lower federal courts, or perhaps in articles they had written in law reviews, talking about how horrible Roe was. So I said, they're on record. And the liberal legal experts were freaking out over each one of them. They had several women come in and tell all kinds of laws, uh, tell all kinds of lies about uh, Kavanaugh, Brett Kavanaugh, based on the fact that they were really concerned, really upset. I think about two issues. One was that Roe would be overturned, but even more so that you're getting more pro-Second Amendment justices on the court. So they were concerned that Roe might be overturned, but they were pretty sure these these two guys, Gorsuch and Kavanaugh and then Amy Coney Barrett, who not only identifies a woman, but she is actually a woman, that they would uphold the Second Amendment. The liberals, I remember seeing, they were kind of concerned about Roe, the possibility it could be overturned, but they were sure that these justices were going to uphold Second Amendment. And they did not too long ago in saying that Donald Trump's bump stock ban was unconstitutional. So good for them on that. So anyway... It's, it's all political for the folks who decide whether or not to confirm justices. As you open your pray, then we have justices that it is not political for. And I hope that makes sense. Okay, it's about that time. Hit it, Brian. We interrupt this program to bring you a special report. It's the Doc Washburn Show Tweet of the Day. And it's brought to you by RedRiverAuto.com. Red River Auto is a big old car dealership in the middle of the USA that believes in freedom, including your freedom to buy the car, truck, van, or SUV of your choice the way you want to, online, and have it delivered to your front door anywhere in the continental USA. Today's tweet of the day is from the great Kanakoa over at Substack. And he has Representative Jim Jordan, chairman of the Weaponization of the Federal Government and the Twitter Files Subcommittee 
and here he is. In the run-up to the 2020 presidential election, FBI Special Agent Elvis Chan, in his deposition in Missouri versus Biden, said that he repeatedly, repeatedly informed Twitter and other social media platforms of the likelihood of a hack-and-leak operation in the run-up to that presidential election. He did it even though there was no evidence. In fact, he said in his deposition that we hadn't seen anything, no intrusions, no hack. Yet he repeatedly told him something was coming. Joel Roth, head of trust and safety at Twitter, testified that he had had regular meetings with the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, the Department of Homeland Security, the FBI, and other Folks, regarding election security, during these weekly meetings, federal law enforcement agencies communicated that they expected a hack-and-leak operation. The expectations of a hack-and-leak operation were discussed throughout 2020, and he was told they would occur in a period shortly before the 2020 presidential election, likely in October. And finally, he said, I also learned in these meetings that there were rumors that a hack-and-leak operation would involve Hunter Biden. So, what did the government tell him? A hack and leak operation was coming. How often did the government tell him this? Repeatedly for a year. When did the government say it was going to happen? October of 2020. And who did the government say it would involve? Hunter Biden. Now think about it. Government had no evidence of any intrusions, no evidence of a hack and leak, yet for a year they tell Twitter that a hack and leak is coming, it's coming in October, and it will involve Hunter Biden. No evidence, but the FBI knows what's going to happen, when it's going to happen, and who it's going to involve. Now, that's amazing. That is amazing to me. Maybe, I mean, maybe they get the time right. We're kind of used to October surprises every four years. So maybe they get the time right, but they got the time, they got the method, and they got the person. That's amazing. It's almost like these guys were clairvoyant. How did they know? How did they know? Maybe it's because they had the laptop and they had had it for a year. They had the laptop. They knew it wasn't hacked, but that's not what they told Twitter. They didn't tell Twitter that information. And Twitter believed, frankly, everything they said. In those weekly meetings, the FBI had built a cozy relationship with this tech company and others as well, we believe. Emails between the FBI and Twitter began with the greeting. Hey, Twitter folks. Emails that asked Twitter to take down accounts and limit visibility of tweets. FBI handed out security clearance to folks at Twitter. They communicated with Twitter on the secret teleporter app where messages disappear after a certain length of time. And of course, they paid Twitter $3.4 million. In addition, on August 6, 2020, the FBI briefed Senators Grassley and Johnson, and according to the Senator's testimony, last month in front of this committee, the briefing was bogus and done, so someone could go leak that the briefing had happened and undermine the Senator's investigation. In September of 2020, a government-funded think tank gets involved. They do a tabletop exercise. The participants include the New York Times, the Washington Post, and other mainstream media outlets. Facebook is there. Mr. Roth of Twitter is there. The organizer was the former CEO of NPR and the former head of news at Twitter. The mock exercise is hosted by the Aspen Institute. The Aspen Institute, which, by the way, in 2020, their budget was $9.3 million. $5 million from the State Department. $4 million from USAID. Almost all their budget. Guess the title. Guess the title of this exercise, the Aspen Digital Hack and Dump Working Group. And guess who the subject was? Guess who the subject was? Hunter Biden. That's amazing. October 14, 2020, the New York Post runs the story on the Biden laptop and Twitter takes it down, even though it was accurate and even though it didn't violate Twitter's rules of Twitter's rules. Other social media companies do the same. Mainstream press works to downplay and discredit the story. Finally, as if on cue, five days later, on October 19th, 51 former Intel officials sign a letter with the now famous sentence, the Biden laptop story has all the classic earmarks of a Russian information operation. Something that was absolutely false. Our government built a cozy relationship with big tech. 
They primed him for a hack and leak operation. They funded the think tank, which further primed big tech and big media. They leaked information to undermine the good work of two United States senators. And then 51 former Intel officials closed the deal with their letter. Mr. Schellenberger pointed out in his reporting, the information op was run on us, run on we the people. And if that's not the weaponization of government, I don't know what is. And I really, I'll get to this in a second, but I want to thank our, our witnesses for being here today. I'll get to this after we allow uh, the ranking member her opening statement. I yield to the ranking member for an opening statement. So there's Jim Jordan, chairman of the uh, House Subcommittee on the Weaponization of Government, talking about how the government has been going after us. Never forget 18 Republican United States senators recently voted with the Democrats in the Senate on a $1.7 trillion spending bill, giving hundreds of millions more to the Biden Justice Department and its secret police, otherwise known as the FBI. Never forget that. Those guys are part of the Uniparty. They're not standing for you. I don't care what else they say. They're Uniparty. They're not standing for you, and they're not standing for the Constitution. You've been listening to episode 358 of the all-new Doc Washburn Show. The views and opinions expressed on the Doc Washburn Show do not necessarily reflect those of our advertisers, but they love us and we love them. If you have any questions for us, email us at contact at docwashburnshow.com. Today's program has been produced by Tim Terrible, directed by Mick Messy. This has been a Terribly Messy production. Portions of today's show will be taken overseas and dropped. If you'd like a transcript of today's episode of the all-new Doc Washburn Show, simply peel the roof off a Rolls-Royce panel truck and send it to Mansur's Computer Solutions, 7th floor of the Ephemeral B. Smoot Building, Whitehall, Arkansas, in care of Sheriff Mansur Sempier X, Senior Vice President, Engineering, IT, and Interoperability for the Doc Washburn Show. And that's the way it is. Thursday, March 9th, 2023.